Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Jackie B, filling in for Beth AQ on this summer edition of The Glass House. I would first like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I am super excited about the two interviews that I have lined up for you on the show today. I'll be speaking with Omar Musa about his new book, Killanova, which is a beautiful collection of art and poetry. I'll be speaking with Megan Anderson, writer and editor about Let's Change the World, a series of children's picture books that aims to inspire parents and children to take action and to create change. Omar Musa's latest book, Killanova, is a beautiful collection of artwork, poetry and prose. In 2018, Omar returned to his family's homeland, Borneo, in a moment of creative and personal crisis. It was in Borneo that he learnt woodcut printmaking. Killanova is a result of this new creative direction and in this collection, Omar explores themes such as nature, environmental destruction, family and history. Omar is an author and poet. He has released three books of poetry, four hip-hop records, and has written a one-man play. His debut novel, Here Come the Dogs, was published in 2014 and was long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award. To talk me through his latest collection, Omar joins me on the phone. Thanks so much for joining me today, Omar. Hey, thank you for having me. So to start with, I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what drew you to the art of wood carving and woodcut printmaking. Well, I came across it really haphazardly. Um, as you said, I was travelling around Borneo, where my father's from, um, trying to get my head straight. I'd kind of got to this point in my life where I was really sick of writing and performing, you know, and that mm. kind of left me feeling pretty, pretty forsaken and lost, you know, because it had always defined me. And so... Um, I'd been travelling around Indonesian Borneo on this big trip up the river from the east coast right into the heart of the jungle and saw all sorts of amazing things, you know, beautiful ancient longhouses with animal spirits carved in the beams and whatnot. But I also saw a lot of environmental destruction, you know, logging and open-cut mines. And so there was, yeah, there, there were all those contradictory things that, that so many people would feel when they go back to the homeland. And um, a few weeks later, I was in Malaysian Borneo visiting my father and I was in a place called Tamparuli at this um, arts residency. And I saw that there was this local punk rocker and activist called Eric Lost Control, who was running a uh, woodcut workshop. And I've been a huge fan of the Borneo woodcut style for years and years because all the punk rockers use it and all the environmental activists make their posters. And, yeah, he was running this workshop. I kind of approached him a bit hesitantly and asked him if, if I could learn how to use the different types of gouges to carve some designs into wood, roll it with ink, and then press it to the cloth or paper using our feet, you know, kind of stamping on it. And, yeah, he welcomed me to do it and just said, carve what you feel, brother. And I carved a, a beautiful, well, the most beautiful thing that I knew at the time, uh, even though I'd never seen it in real life. 
uh, which is a, a Bornean clouded leopard. Mm-hmm. So I carved a, a little leopard <laughs> in sort of a childlike way, and then I had two lines with it that said, when the loggers are away, the leopards will play. And, well, actually, that's just one line. And then, yeah, I don't know, I just became addicted to the form of woodcut, woodcut printmaking. And I came back to Australia and I picked the brains of all the printmakers and artists I knew. And then I went back to Borneo and sat down with all these different woodcut artists and punk rockers. And it just became, it became my new thing. And for some reason, it opened up a different sort of wellspring of creativity in my mind. And that actually sort of brought back the love for my poetry as well. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed the photos printed in your book of you practising woodcutting and it was great to see sort of your process and the people, um, you mentioned some of them just then, um, that you sort of learnt from and who helped you along the way. Um, And I'm also really glad that you brought up the clouded leopard, um, which, of course, uh, as you say, was your first um, woodcut artwork, but it's also a very recurring motif in Kilanova. What does the leopard symbolise to you? Well, yeah, the leopard is a beautiful creature. It's a, it's a big cat, but it's actually the smallest of all the big cats. And even the name of it, a clouded leopard, sort of sounds a bit ethereal. It sounds not quite of this world. It's almost a creature conjured from the air as opposed to the land. And, and so there's something incredibly beautiful about it. But then I guess there's sort of a, there's a melancholy longing um, imbued in that animal, for me anyway, because it represents this vanishing world, um, a, a vanishing natural world that, is so precious, but we're letting it slip through our fingers as, as humans. And, and the leopard is an endangered animal. And um, and I suppose in some ways it kind of it represents me. It's 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 uh, a version of me or an alter ego that is uh, unrestrained by this this human form and and can can be free uh, in my dreams because this leopard is something that appears to me in in dreams, daydreams, reveries. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know, actually. It sort of almost feels as if I'm falsely over-intellectualising something that just came out of me, you know? Because like, mm. I just wanted to carve something beautiful. I just think it's a very beautiful creature. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's a bit of thought process behind it, too. Mm. Uh, you wrote that writing letters backwards was a constant source of early mistakes. <laughs> sort of looking back now, was there anything that sort of surprised you about wood carving and woodcut printmaking, either the practice itself or perhaps something that you discovered within yourself as you were making this art? Oh, yeah. I mean, every, everything about it surprised me because I just didn't expect to be doing it. You know, I never thought I'd have a book of art or have had exhibitions or anything like that. Um, I guess... Uh, yeah, finding that playfulness and that joy that I remembered as a child, you know, painting with my Aussie grandmother when she came down to Queanbeyan for Manly, uh, or even just writing poetry as a kid. Like, I was, I was surprised that a visual art form brought back that, that love for me, you know, when, at a point in my life when, like a lot of adults, I was, I guess, you know, beginning to take myself a bit too seriously. Um, I mean... <laughs> This is probably a negative thing. I don't know if I should be bringing it up, but, you know, I was surprised to find out uh, how hard the wood carving was on the body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like my, my wrist is constantly in pain. My knuckles often swell up when I'm carving. And, and then even the type of wood that I use, um, cheap MDF, which is pretty much compressed sawdust, you know, I, I've since found out that it's, it's held together with formaldehyde and it's carcinogenic so you know me carving without a mask is often doing damage to my respiratory system mm. so that's something i've got to <laughs> got to get out of the habit of yeah. um and while it's poetic to think of something as a beautiful destroyer or you know 
sort of creation and destruction in the same breath. It's yeah, that's not a mythology I want to lean into too much if I want to, you know, live a long life. Mm. Uh, so yeah, there are all sorts of surprising things about it. Actually, you know, both j- joyful and destructive, I guess. Mm. Um, something that I really enjoyed in your wood carvings um, is sort of the way that you combine nature and animals with pop culture references, such as emojis and um, Donald Duck in a Nike shirt. Um, and you yeah. mentioned sort of the the playfulness a little bit earlier, and sort of the um, yeah, so in your process of working with the wood, you write that after moving on from a mistake, you could be playful again and silly and return to the spirit that first moved you as a child, which um, you spoke about a little bit just before. Um, but I was wondering if yeah. you could explain to us the importance of sort of playfulness and being silly with your artwork. Just flesh that out a little bit more if you can. Well, it's in a way, it's just that basic thing of laughing so you don't cry, you know, mm. and... Um, sort of almost like gallows humour or laughing in the darkness. Um, I, I, I think sometimes we think we have to be so stern and earnest when creating art about serious issues, um, whereas I think that part of the, the joy of art making that connects, um, you know, a writer to a reader uh, is also uh, letting the... It's about letting the imagination run riot and run rampant, and sometimes I think it's important, for me at least, to remember... Um, to be playful, not just with ideas, but also with form, you know. And so even when I'm discussing something really, really deadly serious, like a lot of the things in the book are, you know, they're about race relations and colonisation and family trauma and, like, Mm. you know, addiction and stuff like that. But, you know, to to play around with form and images and ideas, hopefully to come up with breakthroughs, you know, uh, creatively and emotionally and intellectually, and so I kind of call it like a deadly, like a deadly playful style in a way. So it has that that balance of light and shade. Mm. If you have just tuned in, I have been chatting with Omar Musa about his latest book, Killer Nova. So between the beautiful color covers of Killer Nova is a mixture of poetry, prose, and wood carvings. I'm curious about your process in structuring the book and what part that process played in the story that you were wanting to tell. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, you know, because originally, um, I think sort of out of some sense of fear or subcon- subconscious cowardice, I, um, I thought that leaping into the Southeast Asian content might be too much of a leap for an Australian audience because I knew that it was coming out here. Uh, and so I front-loaded the book originally with a lot of stuff about uh, the Australian flag and bushfires and, and um, race relations, stuff like that. Um, and then I realised that actually what was at the heart of the book uh, were poems about borders and, and islands and bodies and islands as bodies and, and kind of uh, fluid identities and, and complexities uh, in Southeast Asia and in the water and in the waves, you know, and so I decided as a challenge to myself and sort of to the reader as well um, to actually swap that and front load it with stuff about Borneo and Eastern Indonesia and Southeast Asia so that people were immediately cast into that world, despite the fact that oftentimes Australians don't care much about Southeast Asia or maybe don't have a frame of reference for it. Um, I thought, no, this is what's at the heart of the book. And so why don't I just introduce it to the the audience or the readership just immediately, you know, and they can deal with it or not. But I I hope that I did it in an accessible way and, you know, reached out a hand instead of pushing people away. Mm. 
We are almost out of time. I could ask you so many more questions. Um, but if there was one sort of lesson or takeaway that you would like readers of Killanova to walk away with, what would it be? Well, I think there's, <laughs> there's, two, there's two things, uh, and they might seem paradoxical or contradictory in some way. I mean, the first is, as I mentioned before, it's to be playful. It's to remember that joy and that playfulness. Um, because the world is a heavy, brutal, and violent, chaotic place at times. Um, so to relieve that burden off our shoulders, like I think we have to remember that joy and playfulness. Um, you know what? I'm not going to say the second thing. I'm going to leave it with that. Leave it on a positive note. Mm. Play on. Play on, my friends. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Um, if you've just tuned in, um, I have been chatting to Omar Musa about his latest collection, Kilanova. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. No, I really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for giving the book such a close reading. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. My name is Jackie B, filling in for Beth AQ on this summer edition of The Glass House. So Let's Change the World began in 2020 as a lockdown project for three former colleagues, Megan Anderson, Jenna Campton and Carolyn Ang. In the beginning, the three wanted to design a picture book to uplift parents during the pandemic. However, the book evolved into a series that aims to inspire parents and children to take action to create the world and future they want. So far, they have published two books, Slow Fashion and Zero Waste. The Let's Change the World series is published through Bright Light. Joining me to chat about Let's Change the World is Megan Anderson. Megan is a Melbourne-based writer and editor with a focus on meaningful and responsible storytelling. Thank you so much for joining me on the phone, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. So Let's Change the World is dedicated to your son, who turned one during a summer of fire. I can only imagine how difficult that must have been. Can you tell us what role this personal experience has played in the creation of Let's Change the World? Oh, well, it was that, you know, that really messed up start to 2020 when, yeah, the Gippsland was on fire, there were horrible bushfires and COVID started emerging and um, I was busy editing. I was the editor of Matters Journal at the time, so we were kind of editing an issue based around those themes and, um, yeah, just seeing him turn one and just um, entering into this unknown future was just such a scary thing. So mm. I think once we hit lockdown, I think we just um, starting the series with um, my friends Jenna and Carolyn was kind of a way to not feel so helpless at that time, kind of take action and, and kind of do something that we think might help others feel inspired to take that action too and keep doing what they're doing really because it was such a, a bit of an inspiring time as well mm. during that um, first lockdown. Mm. I would love to hear more about your collaborative process between yourself, Jenna and Carolyn. Can you explain how you all sort of joined forces to work on this series and shed light on some of the behind the scenes collaborative work that went into making these books? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, it was, it was really fun, actually. Carolyn and I worked together at Matters Journal. She mm. was um, the former designer, and she just moved to the UK. So we were both in the lockdown, and we were just kind of like had a bit of free time. I think she was still job hunting because she'd just moved over. So I just reached out and said, I feel like making a kid's book. Do you want to 
do that. And she was keen. And then I kind of thought, well, we might need an illustrator. So my other um, friend and um, illustrator, Jenna Campton, she just moved to Vancouver. Mm. She was in a similar boat and she was keen. So we kind of joined forces and started a series of Zoom calls that were um, <laughs> pretty early morning for me mm. and um, late for um, Carolyn. So there were a lot of bath robes and, you know, one-year-olds screaming in the background. But it was, it was good fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in about sort of how Let's Change the World fills a gap in the children's book or picture book landscape. Can you tell us about the gap that you had identified in the landscape and how Let's Change the World fills it? I like my my son's obsessed with books, like from when he was a baby. Hmm. And I think I more just wanted to kind of write books that I'd be interested in. That just can be so boring, kids' books to read. And like, I like books with lots of text so I can kind of choose what to read to him. And Hmm. then, um, also, what's of interest to myself, I'll read the rest of my head or something while he's, you know, when he was at that younger age anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, so I just kind of thought about what, yeah, just wanted something that I think would be interesting interesting to parents as well. And oh, there's a series of books I was given by my friends for my son, and it's that Quantum Computing for Babies series, mm. like Baby University by um, Chris Ferry. Mm. And it's just got these topics that are just, they just seem so um, like, you know, not what you'd usually think of when you're reading a, a book to your one-year-old, but just so interesting to read and they love the pictures. So everyone's happy, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, I've been chatting to Megan Anderson, author of Let's Change the World series. I was curious about your approach to sort of um, writing for children. Is this something that you've had much experience with? Um, And can you explain to us your process in writing for children? Sure. Um, No, not something I've had experience with. So um, I've got a journalism background. So I've lots of experience writing long-form articles around sustainability and fashion, but um, I hadn't written for children before except for my um, my nephew years ago. So mm. I kind of, um, I, well, I think I drew on my, I've also got a poetry background, so mm. I found that quite helpful. I like rhyming for kids. Like it just, it's really good for them and it just kind of makes it more interesting to read and more melodic. Mm. So I kind of just, um, yeah, just kind of threw some stanzas together and (laughs) hoped for the best. (laughs) But eventually we developed a formula that we've used across all the books. So far you've published Slow Fashion and Zero Waste. Could you explain to our listeners what is meant by these two concepts and why you think these are both important sort of uh, concepts for kids to know and understand? Zero Waste, I think, is so important. I I think there are two aspects to it. One, which I was trying to avoid, so there's a lot of, you know, marketing around zero waste and this idea that it's an aspirational lifestyle and you need to buy these bags and that kind of thing, which I wanted to avoid. But the other side to it is that we kind of need to rethink how we're living because it's clearly not sustainable. And for us to have a future, we need to rethink the way we're living our lives and just take greater responsibility. And then there are also um, so many aspects to it as well that families are doing so well and really appeal to kids, like, re, you know, repurposing food, creating new food out of it, like fermenting or taking a box and turning it into a toy, mm. that kind of side to it too that makes it really accessible for kids. Mm. Yeah, and I love kind of the um, the way that in the books um, there's a certain rhyme um, about sort of making slow fashion or zero waste a bit of a game and it kind of adds that sort of 
that nice sort of learning through play kind of aspects there as well. Initially, all the books started off with, um, oh no, they do, they will start off with the idea that it is a game mm. and it is something that can be fun. You can do together with your, your parents. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it sort of encourages parents to kind of, um, to sort of do these sort of practices with their children as well. Um, just turning to the illustrations now, I really love the illustrations of slow fashion and zero waste. And I love seeing the really diverse um, sort of people and families that are depicted in these books. Can you talk us through some of the design and illustration choices or processes for this book? Our illustrator, Jenna, she's also a textiles designer, which, you know, was amazing, especially doing the um, slow fashion books. So it's something she's really passionate about. And so um, we just wanted to have lots of patterns and colours and definitely featuring families from around the world was so important because the main ideas behind the book were celebrating things that parents are doing already all over the world. There's amazing initiatives and, and movements happening everywhere. And so just drawing on some of those ideas. And uh, the design process with um, Carolyn was great too because she's she's also an art director. So she was, um, you know, working with Jenna to kind of create and help the story flow and make sure it all looks beautiful but also, um, put, you know, got those messages across really strongly. Slow Fashion and Zero Waste are available to purchase on the Let's Change the World website, which is letschangetheworld.pub. You can also buy the books in store at bookshops such as Reading's. Before we wrap up, I was wondering what's next in store for Let's Change the World? Um, well, we've got two more books coming out in March. There's um, ones on clean energy and the other ones on community spirit. So I'm really excited about that. Both um, Jenna and Carolyn have done such a beautiful job. I think they look amazing. Um, what's the best way to sort of keep up to date with Let's Change the World and to sort of be notified of when um, the next sort of books are going to be published? Um, well you can check the website letschangetheworld.pub or um, head to Bright Light their, um, the, their website or their Facebook and Instagram. It's hellobrightlight.com. If there was sort of one final uh, or one sort of big lesson or takeaway that you'd like kids and parents to walk away from the book series with, what would it be? Um, I think that really these books are a celebration of what parents around the world are doing now, parents and caregivers for their children to make the world a better place. There's so much pressure on, on parents these days, not only to just raise perfect human beings, but also basically just save the world, which is crazy. Like there needs to be bigger pressure on governments and big business, but there are just so many things parents who are already so, under so much stress are doing today. And I think these books are really about celebrating that, not so much dictating to them how they should act. So I just wanted to, that's kind of the idea behind the book, just celebrating the things that people are doing everywhere for their children. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about Let's Change the World, Megan. Thanks for having me. Fun. We're almost at the end of this summer edition of The Glass House. Thank you for tuning in. A big thank you to my two guests, Omar Musa and Megan Anderson. If you miss these interviews, you can listen back on the Triple R website. Keep that dial tuned to Triple R. You have been listening to Triple R. My name is Jackie B, filling in for Beth AQ on the Summer Glass House. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast 
And feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. <laughs>